Hello everyone and welcome to this special live event and the final recording of the Climate Talks podcast for this year. I am Professor Jackie Peel, Director of Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne and I'm joined today by my co-host Cathy Oak from the Melbourne Centre for Cities. The Climate Talks podcast is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities. It follows the journey to COP26 and in today's episode and live broadcast also its aftermath. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast is produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Hello all, I'm Cathy Oak, Principal Fellow in Informed Cities and Associate Director of Enterprise and Impact at Melbourne Centre for Cities. With the much anticipated COP26 meeting now concluded, today we will be discussing key outcomes, missed opportunities and moments for hope from the conference with our guests. There is a lot to talk about, Jackie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Cathy. It's been a hectic two weeks with lots of new announcements from participating countries. And many of those announcements have been around strengthening pledges by countries to reduce emissions and to get to net zero. Yeah, and on that topic, let's now listen to our colleague, Professor Don Henry, who recorded the following thoughts for us from the floor of the COP26 Blue Zone on the updates to nationally determined contributions or NDCs put forward by parties. So, firstly, countries required to bring their national commitments here uh, what can we see with that? Well, uh, firstly, there's been 124 new or updated national commitments that actually embrace 151 governments. And that's partly because the EU covers a number of countries, of course. So we've had of all the 193 parties to the Paris Agreement, 151 countries have got new or updated national commitments. We've also got 74 parties, you can read governments, but including the EU there, that have brought long-term plans here, uh, focusing around net zero mid-century. What's it all uh, look like? Well, let me give some encouragement first. When you include and look at the net zero commitments by mid-century, there were a, a lot of new commitments made here and some significant ones, including India, that committed to net zero by 2070. That sounds a fair way out, but as a developing country, that's uh, an impressive commitment. All developed economies have committed to net zero by 2050 or earlier. Just a couple of granular pieces in this. I've mentioned the um, commitments of India. They also included that India would achieve 50% of its power from renewables by 2030. 
we saw a strong alignment across the, uh, the, the developed countries for a 50% reduction of emissions or thereabouts, a halving of emissions by 2030. The US announced that position earlier this year. Many countries have aligned behind it, including all the G7 countries. Uh, some countries are stronger than that. Uh, for example, the UK has a commitment of a 68% reduction by 2030. The EU's a 55%. Some countries are a little less, such as Japan, 46 But notably, Australia has not shifted its 2030 commitment that was given in 2015 to the Paris Agreement of a 26 to 28% reduction by 2030. And it would appear as though Australia is the only developed economy that has not shifted and strengthened its 2030 commitment since the time of the Paris Agreement. And indeed, Australia's current 2030 commitments, probably at best, only about half of our fair share that we should be doing uh, globally. So it's a glaring weakness and uh, stands out like a uh, sore toe here to um, all countries and observers at this COP. Thanks to Don uh, recording those thoughts for us from Glasgow in the Blue Zone and you could hear the traffic behind his reflections there on the role of Australia or perhaps the absence of Australia in raising ambition at the COP. We're now going to turn to our guests here in Melbourne to hear their debrief of the past two weeks in Glasgow. And our first guest today is Rebecca Burden, who's an honorary research fellow with Melbourne Climate Futures and the CEO of Climate Resource. So welcome to the podcast today, Rebecca. Thanks, Jackie. And thanks, Cathy. And hello, everyone. Yes, so it's great to hear from Don on the floor. I think the question put to me was, what is our assessment of the aggregate impact of all of those pledges made at Glasgow and in the lead up to COP26 and what that implies for whether 1.5 is alive? So I think, firstly, it's been very significant. For the first time in history following Glasgow, the, the best estimate of projected end of century warming is less than two degrees Celsius if all the pledges made by countries are supported and achieved. And that's big. It's important to remember that just seven years ago, it seemed quite possible that the world was on track for about four degrees of warming by 2100. And the change reflects the um, progress made since the Paris Agreement in the months leading up to COP26 in Glasgow itself, and of course also the rapid declines in the cost of wind and solar, which have changed the economics of the energy transition. So in the last couple of weeks, four groups globally have assessed the temperature implications of countries' pledges, some of which Dawn ran through, um, including our company, Climate Resource, the UNFCCC, the International Energy Agency and Climate Action Tracker. Um, and we've all come to very similar conclusions, which is interesting given that some countries' commitments are hard to quantify. Uh, so I'll do a quick run through of the assessments of projected warming that have come out in the last couple of weeks and, and then talk about what that implies for um, 1.5 degrees. 
So in early November, before the COP26 meeting, a UNFCCC report concluded that we're on a pathway to 2.7 degrees of warming by 2100. So the key thing to note about this UNFCCC assessment is that it was based on what countries had committed to up to 2030 and did not consider countries' longer-term targets, such as the commitments to reach net zero by the middle of the century, now made by over 70 countries. Um, the UNFCCC took the emissions pathway implied by the unconditional NDCs to 2030 and extended it out to 2100 to arrive at the 2.7 degree assessment. So following updates made by countries at Glasgow, the end of century temperature rise was projected to be between 2.3 and 2.4 degrees. If we use that same approach as the UNFCCC and only take into account the new 2030 commitments in combination with those made prior to Glasgow. So the big change in projected warming comes from looking not just at the 2030 commitments, but also taking into account what happens if those longer term targets and net zero pledges are supported and achieved. Given the commitments made by all countries, including the new announcements at Glasgow, and in particular China and India, this now leads to projected temperature rise of around 1.8 degrees by 2100, which is, uh, you know, for the first time we've had a greater than 50% chance of less than two degrees, and indeed 1.8 degrees being the best estimate. The main difference between the 2.7 projection in early November and the 1.8 degree projection that is now being discussed, not just the updated commitments at Glasgow, but also whether the conditional and longer term net zero targets are considered and of course whether they're supported and achieved. So is 1.5 still in play? Uh, it's really clear that that all depends on the path that the world takes to 2030. It's absolutely clear that global CO2 emissions need to fall by around half by 2030 compared to 2010 levels to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And the current NDCs to 2030 don't even get close. And that is the change that will make all the difference given that the 1.8 degree assessment already takes into account those longer term net zero targets. So, so really it's action in this decade that's essential, as well as really strong, effective action policies and implementation to drive towards those net zero targets beyond 2030. And at this point, a lot of those targets are very vague and not yet supported by policy, not least Australia, which we've all discussed a lot since it was announced, but that's also true of many other countries. In addition to having greater clarity around what might actually happen to achieve those targets. There is a need for the whole world and large emitters like China, as well as others, to really bend the emissions trajectory down in the next 10 years and address that credibility gap. Thanks, Rebecca. It's a really important marker of progress to see those assessments coming out that we're finally getting under two degrees or a realistic chance of getting under two degrees, but there's still so much more work to be done. And 2030 is the new 2050, really, in terms of when that action needs to occur. So thanks for coming along today to share your expertise with us. Pleasure. And now I'd like to welcome to the show our next guest, Dr. Janine Felsen. Janine is a research fellow with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute and a global finance expert. <laughs> welcome back to Australia and to the show, Janine. So climate finance and especially funding for adaptation and loss and damage was one of the signature issues of COP26. What were the decisions that were made in Glasgow around these issues, Janine, and, and what are the opportunities that were missed? 
Thanks for the question, Cathy, and, and thanks for welcoming me back to, to Australia. So adaptation, loss and damage, but finance in general to transition from where we are now to new development pathways to reach 1.5, what, what we just heard of, and requires significant investments. And the investments so far have been really below the level that's needed. The way the Glasgow Climate Change Conference is engineered is really to focus a lot more on process. So what we saw were decisions that focused really around the process of delivering on one, the 100 billion uh, commitment, was, which was made in 2009, and two, how we will get to scale from those billions to what actually is needed really in terms of the trillion. So I would say that in terms of the outcomes, we saw more process-based outcomes than we actually saw delivery of uh, commitments on either 100 billion or of course the post-2025. In terms of the 100 billion, we saw more countries stepping up to uh, commit to doubling their climate finance for adaptation, which is something that's sorely underfunded. It currently stands at about 25% of total climate finance. So doubling it would mean uh, getting closer to 50% of the 100 billion, which as you know, has yet to be reached um, and is not likely to be reached until 2023. Then we saw processes which are basically aimed to build trust amongst parties that that commitment to 100 billion will be delivered on. So we have a new work program to track that delivery. And then we have another process that will elaborate what the post-2025 goal will look like. There were other outcomes that I think are also relevant to the discussion on finance, and that occurred in the context of the market discussion. So there were rules that were set up for the carbon trade in markets. And one of the parameters or one of the uh, guidelines that was issued was a mandatory set aside of 5% of share of proceeds from carbon credits to be channeled towards adaptation finance. Now it's mandatory in the context of the centralized market system. It's recommended in the context of the voluntary carbon market system. But outside of the negotiation process, I think it's important to recognize that there were other climate finance announcements, pledges to the adaptation fund, pledges to the least developed countries fund that amounted to somewhere around 800 plus million dollars. One of the biggest headline grabbing announcement of course came from the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, which claimed that some $130 trillion of private capital is committed to transforming the economy to net zero. Of course, that announcement came with a lot of scrutiny, even from the UN Secretary General calling for greater accountability to avoid double counting and greenwashing. In terms of what opportunities were missed, well, for all the talk of solidarity with the most vulnerable, the Glasgow outcome has very little to show for it. Heading into COP, the small island developing states, under the banner of climate justice made, addressing loss and damage, a high priority. And just for the record, loss and damage has been on the table since 1992. It's enshrined in the original convention, and it only then became incorporated into the Paris Agreement all the way in 2015. In 2019, the small islands came up with a proposal to mainstream loss and damage in the vertical climate funds of the UNFCCC. That was met with, with a mere mention that continued support would be provided for that, but ostensibly under an adaptation portfolio, which as you know, island states consider it completely different. There was a push to establish a Glasgow facility for loss and damage that was knocked down and eventually what, was, what they were left with was a three-year dialogue without any clarity of any outcome. So, you know, in terms of uh, missed opportunity, that was one. In terms of gaps, I think we still see the need for robust climate finance governance. 
and the need to come to a common understanding on what counts as climate finance. Quickly on the next steps, I think the representatives of the island states said it best. COP27 in Egypt will be a referendum on climate justice. We have this new process for deliberating a, a new climate goal. That's going to require some heavy lifting, heavy work. But there are responsibilities and roles for each constituency as we move from Glasgow to Sharm el-Sheikh. Developed countries will have to demonstrate how their pledges support materially the actual commitments for developing countries to meet their nationally determined contributions. There are a lot of conditional targets. Those conditional targets matter for 1.5. Multilateral institutions as well as private sector will be pressed to align their portfolios with the Paris Agreement and with robust net zero standards. That's very critical. Developing country parties will have to focus on institutional strengthening to better articulate their needs and so access finance. And then small island developing states will have to have greater efforts into um, addressing systematic support on loss and damage. And finally, for everyone who cares about securing a climate safe future, I expect to see relentless activism and advocacy. Oh, Janine, thank you so much. I think you've very much summarized what was achieved, but the huge list of things that still need to be maintained on our focus and radar. And that's not just within the negotiator group, but obviously everyone else watching and advocating from the sidelines. So thank you again for your considerable efforts in this space. And we look forward to the next steps and and listening and learning from you. So thanks again for joining us, Janine. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, last but by no means least, uh, a warm welcome to our final guest, uh, Robin Schofield. Robin is an Associate Professor in Atmospheric Chemistry and Associate Dean Environment and Sustainability at the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne. That's quite a mouthful. Thanks for joining us today, Robin. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Robin, alongside all of the country announcements that we saw on NDC pledges, the nationally determined contributions, we also saw at COP26 some new pledges around reducing emissions of other greenhouse gases, non-carbon dioxide. What can you tell us about the decisions made in Glasgow on, on those kinds of greenhouse gases, methane in particular probably? Yeah, it, it was exciting to to hear methane being mentioned and, and really given, I, I guess, the gravity that it really deserves because it creates a fair amount of opportunity, actually. So methane is much shorter lived in the atmosphere than, than the other greenhouse gases. And I will talk a little bit to nitrous oxide as well because I think those two gases, unlike the DHFCs, are really only controlled under this Paris Agreement. And so with methane, we heard the pledges around, you know, 30% reduction by 2030. And because its biggest impact comes in that 20 years, you know, actually before that, it's an opportunity like, I guess, like any other of the short-lived climate forces, it's local. Uh, It has a pretty immediate impact and a positive impact if we can reduce it. And And we can, like many of the inefficiencies in our distribution systems are responsible for leakage and and wastage. And so we actually don't know when we pump natural gas into our cities, how much we're losing 
through the distribution, uh, actually with even within our houses, uh, because we don't have that oversight and I guess mandate to really monitor and improve. If you don't monitor something, you can't manage it. And we are not managing our gas distribution systems at the moment as much as we could. And, and so there's an easy win. And so I, I was delighted to, to hear that come to the fore. I can talk about nitrous oxide just a little bit because I saw that it certainly comes up in the agricultural space. And again, it's around the management of soil and nutrients. And there's the opportunity there. It's recognized strongly by the agricultural sector that if you've got improvements in animal health and management of your systems, you can avoid that emission. And unlike methane, um, nitrous oxide has a really long atmospheric lifetime, but its global warming potential is around 300, regardless of 20 or, or 100 year timescales. So it's one that we need to watch and um, we need to watch it for another reason as well. Nitrous oxide, once we've got rid of all our ozone depleting substances, will become the major means by which the stratospheric ozone is depleted. Thanks, Robin. That's that's interesting to hear about those opportunities on other greenhouse gases. We often only seem to talk about carbon dioxide. Were there any other missed opportunities in your view at the Glasgow conference in, in terms of emissions reduction opportunities? There are always the other <laughs> the other other gases and, and other items. And and probably one of my favorite ways that I think that it just doesn't even come into the conversation, but really needs to. Uh, for example, all of our cities uh, in it here in Australia, the ozone in those cities is under NOx control, which means the nitrogen oxides, which means high temperature combustion, which means diesel. So if we can get rid of diesel or at least put controls on it, because we are experiencing huge growth in our diesel fleet, it's up from 16% in 2016 to 26% now across Australia. So we're becoming the dumping ground for diesel vehicles. And if we want to tackle tropospheric ozone, we need to tackle that problem. And so that's a, a missed opportunity in understanding how that whole system works because that one would fix it. It would be, you know, it's a, it's a policy knob that can be turned. Yeah, so I think you mentioned that sometimes when we do have those mandates in place, those policy knobs, if you like, then it opens up lots of opportunities. So in your space, climate science, what are the implications of the outcomes from Glasgow for climate science in general, do you think? I think there's the opportunity to, to really look at what 30% methane will look like, you know, the reductions thereof, but also we need to really start to look much more closely at the hydrogen transition, particularly if that means transport by ammonia. You know, that is a, a strong greenhouse gas. What the, you know, again, using, if it's using the infrastructure networks, what does liquid look like and what are the implications for that? Um, so those are all part of the consideration which, you know, our climate models are, are pretty simple when we start to talk about chemistry because we're just trying to deal with some of the, the harder issues, I, I guess, with clouds and aerosols. Those are always big issues there. 
Well, thanks, Robin. It sounds like, you know, the the story is not over for climate science and climate modelling by any means, uh, even with these new outcomes at Glasgow. So thanks for sharing your expertise with us on the podcast today. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Oh, Jackie, what great reflections, analysis, and I think actually really unique insights from our guests again. You know, what are your final reflections on the outcomes of COP26, Jackie? Yeah, well, Cathy, I think this COP was billed right from the start as a critical meeting and and it, it didn't disappoint. For me, as an international lawyer, COP was particularly important as a test for whether the Paris Agreement process that, as Janine mentioned, was set up in 2015 and has a process of ratcheting up countries' commitments, largely just through applying transparency and political pressure. So was that going to work, I think? By and large, it did. As Don highlighted, we saw significant updating of many countries' nationally determined contribution pledges before and at the COP and also those long-term emissions strategies including net zero targets and and these are starting to bend it seems the curve of the emissions trajectory globally downwards towards the path we need to be on stay at around 1.5 degrees of warming and as Robin alluded to as well there are plenty of pledges on other topics including methane but also coal coal financing and a range of other areas so we're just seeing a lot of really delivery I think on the idea that the Paris process can generate momentum. Yeah, I guess it was it was good to see that that momentum on mitigation and fossil fuels actually referenced in the Glasgow Pact. Even if the language was watered down at the last minute on oh, all of our hearts, fell a little bit listening from afar that phase down rather than phase out of coal, perhaps disappointing. And, and listening to Janine, you know, the store and climate finance, less rosy, but there's certainly a lot to take on board and, and a lot to do when the parties meet again in, in Egypt next year. Absolutely. And Janine referenced the African COP in Egypt, potentially being the climate justice COP um, with loss and damage, hopefully at the front and centre there. And I think next year, we're also going to see a lot of developments in the climate science space as uh, parts two and part three of the IPCC sixth assessment report come out and they'll be on the issues of adaptation and mitigation policy. Yeah, and no doubt we'll see plenty of pressure on Australia to step up its climate action, especially our 2030 commitments. The Glasgow Climate Pact requests countries to revisit and strengthen the 2030 NDCs to align with the Paris Agreement. And particularly important to note, as Don pointed out at the start, you know, Australia is the only developed country not to have strengthened its NDC from 2015. Yes, I think we'll be talking more about Australia and uh, its commitments in the lead up to the next COP, Cathy. But we've also talked a lot in the podcast about civil society actions, whether it's First Nations, people's cities, NGOs, and Janine mentioned it again, the importance of activism from all sectors. What do you think is going to be the role for those kinds of non-state actors in the aftermath of COP26? Well, it certainly has to be said that announcements outside of the formal negotiations were significant and really positive, mostly, uh, from business, cities, investors committing to significant emissions reductions and adaptation measures as well. So reflecting on some of the other non-state voices that we've heard on this podcast series and their reaction to the Glasgow Pact, to some of the 
groups that you just mentioned. Um, so local and subnational governments, they were very pleased that multi-level cooperation, the mention of it remained in the PAC text. This endorsement of joined up action between national, regional and local governments, it really is a key step towards stronger NDCs. Indigenous voices are referenced in the Glasgow PAC, but as we know, talk is cheap if it doesn't actually mean anything in practice. Uh, and an example there is that First Nations presence was totally absent from the Australian Pavilion, which essentially was a trade show and trade show for big business. And, and it did reflect badly on Australia. And as for youth, Greta Thunberg decried the COP as a failure. Perhaps that's too strong, as we've heard today. There's a few elements of hope in there. Um, but when it comes to the pack truly acknowledging the impact of lack of action on future generations, there is a lot to be done by national governments in the lead up to COP27 for youth for the future to actually feel that they're being listened to. Yeah, well, I think we can all agree that there's certainly lots of hard work to come. So you can be sure we'll be back next year with the podcast to talk about what's next and the lead up to COP27. So thank you to Rebecca Burden, Janine Felson, Robin Schofield for joining us today and to Don Henry for his recordings from Glasgow. And thank you to all of our guests and listeners for joining us on the Climate Talks journey to COP26. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Jackie Peel. Today's podcast was produced by Greta Robenstone, Rebecca Markey-Taller and Ariana Dickey. And many thanks to them in the background here today for bringing this whole series together. And to Beth, Barbara and Joanne Burns at the Melbourne Climate Futures for making this live recording possible. Thanks also to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, which is taken from their album Only One Way to Head. So this brings us to the end of this season of Climate Talks. We'll be back in the new year with more episodes focusing on how we turn the outcomes from COP26 into action. To be the first to know when our new season is released next year, subscribe to Climate Talks via Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the podcast page in the show notes. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and at MCF UniMelb or hashtag Melbourne Climate Futures. Until 2022, thank you. Thanks for listening.